The last few weeks in the book of Revelation, we've covered some pretty heavy material. In chapter 14, we began in earnest talking about the subject of judgment, and I exhorted you to live with judgment day in mind. When we walked through chapters 15 and 16, I encourage you to consider whether you see the theme of divine judgment through the lens of heaven or through the lens of earth. And it helped you to understand, I hope, that there's a different vantage point in how you think about judgment if you think about it from heaven or from earth. It's important, though, to remember with all of this content about divine judgment that the whole book isn't dark. The whole, bar, the whole book isn't foreboding. There's coming a day when the sun's gonna rise, when the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be real and Jerusalem's gonna come down. Like that day's coming, I promise. So stick with us, keep coming, it's gonna get better, I promise. But it's important, I think, to be reminded what else is in this book. In fact, I want you to read this aloud with me just to be reminded where this book is going. Where are we going? Where's Revelation headed? Here it is, let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Yes, and amen. Can't you wait? That day's coming, folks. It's coming. We're going to get there, not only in our study of Revelation. We're literally going to get there someday, a day when everything is made new. New Jerusalem will come down from heaven Glory and beauty is how it's described. But but did you notice that the glory and beauty that was described, the radiance that John sees, he compared it to something. Do you remember? He compared that city to a bride adorned for her husband. Why? Why not just say she's the city's beautiful? Why why say like a bride adorned for her husband? Well, it's a way to make that message, that image, memorable, more powerful, more layered. And when it comes to apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, we see lots of imagery like that designed to take a message and push it deeper, to get beyond just our intellect and our understanding and to hit us emotionally. It's what the arts do, music, poetry, works of art. They they create powerful statements. Apocalyptic literature is just like that. It's meant to be more emotional. That's one of the reasons why I've left a lot of sort of the technical issues related to Revelation, I've left those unaddressed because I don't want you to miss the point. I want you to see the main thing that John wants you to see. I don't want you to miss the bride. I don't want you to be like a grumpy man who shows up at a wedding and the music starts and the bride comes down the aisle and everyone's ooing and aahing and he looks at his watch and says to his wife, you know, they started the wedding service 10 minutes late. 
he may be right, but he's missed the point. I don't want you to like be in the Christian version of the, those progressive ads. Have you seen those? You know, where Dr. Rick, they'll become like your parents as the homeowner, you know what I'm talking about? Like those are hilarious, aren't they? Like I totally resonate with people I know like that. No, I mean, like I totally resonate with that. I walk into a parking lot and I think, man, it's a lot of money in these cars, all these parking like, I, like I'm, it's kind of embarrassing. I don't want my kids watch them because I don't want them to think it's, but I don't want you to be like that guy in church. Like you're so technical about the book of Revelation that you missed, yo, hey, 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 it's about Jesus. There's a bride coming down an aisle. Those images are meant to be meaningful. So Revelation 17 highlights another kind of image. Instead of a bride, this text leads with a prostitute. It's meant to be uncomfortable because John wants you to see something. He wants you to feel something. You want something to stick with you in light of this text. What is it? It is this, that the seductive and pervasive power of evil will be defeated. John wants you to see that the way in which evil allures people and how pervasive it is, one day it's going to be defeated. John could have made three propositional statements. He could have said evil is bad, evil is everywhere, and evil will be defeated. He could have said that. No. Instead, he helps us to see this imagery. It's meant to stay with us. So what I want to do is just first unpack the scene that John sees in the first six verses, and then the Bible actually gives us what the meaning is of this scene, and then I want to draw just a few conclusions or applications at the end. So first, the scene. The vision in John 17 begins with one of the previous angels that were charged with the judgment of God speaking directly to John. And the angel offers an invitation for a particular glimpse into how God deals with the problem of evil. Look at verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. What's interesting is we see again evil personified. Previously, in chapter 16, evil was personified as a city, the city of Babylon. And we'll see that image emerge both in this chapter, we'll see Babylon in this chapter, and especially next week in chapter 18. But here we see the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. We'll come back to many waters later in this sermon. But first we just need to consider something rather uncomfortable. What, what's the point of the great prostitute. Well, one reason this is in the Bible is that throughout Old Testament history, the Bible often uses marriage and sexuality as a metaphor for spirituality. We see that even in the text we read at the beginning of the sermon, that God describes the new Jerusalem, where God's people are, as a bride, and throughout the Old Testament, God often refers to his people this way. 
But he also refers to idolatry. When people worship another god, he uses language connected to marriage and connected to sexuality. He describes their worship of other gods as adultery and as immorality. God, in effect, says to his people, you're cheating on me. And he does that so we can feel it in ways that we might not feel it if that kind of language wasn't used. For instance, listen to Isaiah chapter one in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Or Isaiah 50 in verse one, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? For your transgressions, your mother was sent away. So the Bible uses this metaphor, this image, for a reason. And the reason is this, church, we tend to minimize the seriousness of our rebellion against God. We, we tend to minimize our worship of something other than God. And this metaphor is meant to help us get it, to feel it. So the prophets often use marital and sexual metaphors so that we'll feel the seriousness of what they're talking about. And the reason is, is that the kind of immorality and the kind of violation captured in the image of the prostitute, it's significant. It takes intimacy and makes it transactional. Rather than sexuality being something expressed in the context of covenant and love and exclusivity, no, now it's cheapened by making a person a commodity, something to be bought. And a selfless gift in covenant marriage is now exchanged for a self-centered purchase. Sex is sold and bought. This, this should be, it is, it's, Troublesome, it's repulsive. And yet what's also really disturbing is there's an element of enticement related to all of this, that while we know it's repulsive, there's also an attraction that should just be startling. Immorality lies a trap, and the trap is seducing. Proverbs 5 puts it bluntly, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in her end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as the two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. So we're gonna, we're gonna see this play out even further later on in the text related to her allurement. But for right now, this metaphor just needs to land on us in the sense that it's designed to make you sit up and listen. Instead of just saying evil is bad, evil is seducing, evil is pervasive, John sees a prostitute. It's meant to be shocking. And we're going to see the way that God is going to deal with it. Revelation 17 is here to help us feel the significance of evil, and it's meant to highlight the pervasiveness of it because we live in an environment where we forget that it's pervasive and we forget that it's seductive. And as a result, we need someone, something, some metaphor, some passage of scripture to go, hey, 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 you live in a dangerous world. That looks attractive, that's gonna kill you. 
That thing isn't just a little thing. That thing is everywhere. It's, it's sort of like what, what parents do with their children, right? They, they, they warn them all throughout their life about be, be, be careful of that because a child doesn't have a category for what's safe and what isn't, right? My wife has famously said that it's a miracle that any boy lives beyond the age of 10, right? Because like, they just make crazy decisions. Why can't I jump off this three-story building? It'll be fun, right? And no parent tells their kids because you have lack of development in your frontal cortex and you don't understand the, like, they just tell them, don't do it. This is a big deal. And we need things to reorient us as to the world in which we really live. Now look at verse two. With verse two, she's not only seated on many waters, but then it says, with whom, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. There's more metaphors. He's not talking about literal sexual immorality. He's using it as a metaphor for what's happening, namely that nations and leaders are colluding with this woman. And what's more, they're drinking the wine of her sexual immorality and it's pervasive so that the dwellers of the earth have become drunk with it. Take note that the immoral relationship between the woman and the kings has caused even the people of earth to lose their minds. The world, says Revelation 17, is intoxicated with evil. And this apocalyptic vision is trying to shock us into realizing, what is the world really like? Where do you live? You live in this kind of world. So this vision isn't about um, immorality or drunkenness. It is about the pervasive and seductive power of rebellion against the holy God. Here's my question. If you're a Christian, is this what you see do you see it? One of the goals of the book of Revelation is to help you know what's gonna happen at the end of the day. Like where is history headed? That's one of the goals. But another goal is to awaken your spiritual senses as to where we really live and what's really going on. And the question I would ask you is, do you sense that happening in you? This, this book, chapter 17, should help you when you go to school tomorrow and your friends say something and you're tempted to laugh and you're like, no, that's gross. It's not funny. It's funny because it's uncomfortable, but the reason that it's uncomfortable is because it's gross and I'm not laughing. The seductive power of sin draws us in. The pervasive nature of it, everywhere you go, you're working on your computer, you're scrolling through social media, you're watching the Super Bowl tonight. And evil is pervasive, it's everywhere. And the question is, do you, Christian, know how you're going to make it? Well, one way you're not gonna make it is if you don't take evil seriously or you think it's rather limited in its scope. Revelation 17 helps us to get a greater awareness of both the seduction and the pervasiveness of evil. As a result, we need a blunt image. Verse three, we find that he is carried away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there he sees a woman 
The same woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. That beast should sound familiar. It is none other than the sea beast, the Antichrist, and here we find the connection between the prostitute and the Antichrist. Verse 4 tells us about her attire. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. It adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. So she's lovely and she looks successful. In her hand, though, is a bowl, a golden cup. Notice that inside the cup, it's full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So here it is. She has a lovely attire, and the cup is beautiful, but inside it is a lot of bad stuff. Oh, how that pictures evil in the world. Next. On her forehead was written a name of mystery. So her forehead, she's got this label, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So here we have, now this woman is called Babylon. So wait a minute, I thought Babylon was a city. Well, it's more than a city. It's actually a spirit of an age. It's a philosophy of life. It's the spirit of rebellion. And John sees both Babylon and this woman as being one in the same, this metaphorical description of the nexus between demonic forces and earthly kingdoms. She's described here as the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So in other words, she's the source and she multiplies her efforts. And then look at verse six. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Wow. No doubt John and his readers, they have an idea of who this woman is and who the Babylon reference is pointing towards, or rather what it's pointing towards. No doubt they had the Roman Empire in mind. That's that's why John is on Patmos. He's there. He's been banished because of the decree of a Roman Empire. But you need to know that the spirit of Babylon has existed way beyond the fall of the Roman Empire. It doesn't just apply to Rome. As one commentator says, it applies to any kingdom, nation, or government characterized by idolatry, immorality, luxury, and persecution. So here's the scene. And it's meant to be shocking, it's meant to be alarming, and understanding this imagery is designed to create within you some uncomfortable feelings. It's also meant to wake you up, Christian, to the world in which you live. For you to remember, next week, this afternoon, tonight, you live in a world of ambient seduction and pervasive evil. It's everywhere. And don't you dare walk into the world or your office or your school or jump on your computer or your phone and be unaware. You are entering a dangerous world. Now, it's not without hope, but you got to know the kind of world that we're in. John wants us to see this. So he unpacks it further with 
the meaning. So all of this now has just been the first six verses. Now we get to see a little bit more as to what's really going on. 6b, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Marveled may not be strong enough. The idea is he is stunned, he's shocked. The angel intervenes, says to him, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. So here we go. He says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So notice that he was, he is not, and he's about to rise. That that should sound a little bit familiar because A, in Revelation 13, the beast is described as having a mortal wound. He was either killed or murdered or something and came back from the dead or was kind of a comeback story of some kind, we don't know. We also know that in Revelation chapter one, the book of Revelation began with these words, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. That's Jesus. He was, he is, and he is to come. So what's happening here is the Antichrist is creating a counterfeit Christ. That's why he's the Antichrist. He's just close, but he's not the real thing. This is what the enemy loves to do. He loves to get things really close to what things really should be in terms of their righteousness or their correctness or their purity, but he loves to distort it just a little bit. Began in the garden. You're not gonna die. God knows when you eat of it, you're gonna be like him. That's what's really going on. It's a conspiracy. God's out to hinder your happiness. Just eat the fruit. And in so doing, they open the door to eternal unhappiness. Oh, watch out for counterfeit truths. Verse nine, there's a call for wisdom. He says, this, chapter 17, this calls for wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So, Some commentators take these seven mountains to refer to the seven hills of Rome. Some think it refers to the representative number of all earthly kingdoms. Others see it as a reconstituted Roman Empire that will take place in the future. The point here is that Rome is the new Babylon and it's the clearest real-time example in John's world of a country, a nation, a kingdom, an empire who is bent on its own blasphemous way and opposing the might and the rule of God in all things. And again, that didn't end when Rome fell. That's continued. Like that thing is baked into every kingdom, every nation, throughout every moment in global history. Verse 10, we find seven kings are mentioned. Some take these to be the literal emperors of Rome. Others think it's more representative of earthly kingdoms. Even others think it's the seven number is meant to be a completeness, the completeness of the rebellion. But the point really to be made is in verse 11. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. In other words, the Antichrist is going to use earthly powers in order to enact the will of the devil. 
It expands in verse 12. The 10 horns that you saw are the 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So this colluding influence will take in other kings in in alignment in order to push against the rule and reign of God and to persecute God's people. Verse 12, and the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Verse 13, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So they collectively organize, they give the beast more power. He's using them and for what purpose? The purpose is found in verse 14. They will make war on the lamb. That's why, that's why they gather their power. The devil is using the system, he's using these kings, he's using the prostitute, he's using the seduction and the pervasiveness of evil for the express purpose of raging war on the lamb. And notice what happens, the lamb will Conquer them. And all God's people said, amen. Why? For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. That's why, because of who he is. And then notice, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. If you're a Christian, you are called, you are chosen, and you are faithful. You're not faithful just because of what you do. You're faithful because God makes you faithful. What is your only hope that you're gonna make it to the end? Not that you're strong or you're smart or you've got the strength that you need or that you in and of yourself are gonna figure out how to navigate your world and your culture. Your hope tomorrow morning when you go out into a dangerous world filled with seduction and filled with the pervasiveness of evil is this. I know who my king is and he's gonna help me make it to the finish line. That's the goal. You're called, you're chosen, you're faithful. We'll come back more, come back to that more at the end. And, and then notice what happens. Verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Interesting. The sea, the chaotic sea, the chaotic sea are people. He says, and languages and multitudes and nations. So the, the, the sea are human beings. The world is broken because people are broken. And broken people create broken things. Look what follows in verse 16. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, interesting. Suddenly now, the, the ten kings and the beast, they, they turn on the prostitute and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Isn't, this unholy alliance now self-destructs. The devil was not only using evil and using seduction and using the pervasiveness of it all, he's also using the prostitute. He's, he's using that prostitute spirit, that evil spirit, that Babylon-like reality connected to the nation, and in this case, Rome. And isn't it so telling that evil always finds a way to generate more evil? And what's more, Evil is destructive to everyone involved, including its host. The forces of evil are turning against each other. This is what always happens. 
And then we find verse 17, for God has put it into their heart to carry out his purpose, being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, the devil is evil, the beast is wicked, the prostitute is seductive, and all of this is contained within the box of God's sovereign will. Even the devil himself, as awful as evil is, cannot step outside the sovereign will of God. There is a leash around the neck of Satan and God says, no further shall you go, even as bad as he is. And yet he uses the devil's own works as the means of judgment. His judgment on the devil. He uses the devil to judge the devil. In the same way that the apostle Paul says, that as it relates to human beings, one of the ways that he has judged the world is he gives us over to the things that we say that we want. You want this? Then have it and see what happens. Text concludes in verse 18. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Implication must have been for John that it was Rome. That's the most obvious explanation of it. But again, this spirit of Babylon, this woman filled with seduction and the pervasiveness of evil, that didn't stop with the collapse of the Roman Empire. The reason this verse is here is to provide a bookend to the chapter. It started with the woman and ends with Rome. And it begins here to remind us of the pervasive nature of what it means for Babylon to be Babylon. And next week, we're gonna see a text that rejoices at the fall of Babylon. So then the question is, what do we do with this? What now? One of my goals of this text is just to explain it and then kind of have it just land on you and then let the Spirit of God apply it how he needs to apply it. I can't fully get this into the places in your soul that it needs to be. And I hope that it does. I hope it just lands on you that tomorrow morning you think about the spirit of the age in which you live. Saying all of that, let me just give you three things to think about. Number one, I hope this text causes you to remember the seductive and pervasive nature of evil. I hope this text causes you to remember, 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 the seductive, and pervasive nature of evil. I know that most of you know that. I'm not worried if that's intellectually something you would affirm. What I'm worried is that emotionally you would live as if those things aren't a big deal. I hope this imagery in this passage serves as a warning. Hello, evil is seductive. It doesn't look like a disaster. So many people are like, this isn't a problem. Don't worry, I got this, I got this, I got this. And they're like, oh my goodness, this thing got me. The pull is so strong. There are counterfeits all over the place. 
that are in direct opposition to what is truly right and honorable and pure. And if you're a Christian and you live in this world, you have got to understand that everything in our world and our culture is pulling you a particular direction. The gravitational pull is not towards righteousness and purity and truth. It's towards seduction and evil. And in order for you to make it, you gotta have a particular body posture that leans the other way. This text helps us to be reminded of that doesn't mean we retreat to the hills, run away from the world, but it does mean we gotta understand the kind of world that we're living in. We also shouldn't panic when the world is bad. The world's always been bad. And Christians have been making it, making it, making it all the way to the finish line. Some people are like, oh man, everything's falling apart. Right, it's always been falling apart. And part of our challenge is we thought maybe it wasn't gonna be falling apart. Kind of like my little Christian world here and everything's nice and The fact of the matter is that's even an illusion in and of itself. The pervasive effects of sin are tragic. Remember, remember the seductive and pervasive nature of evil. Secondly, understand in light of Revelation 17 that evil resides in people and societies. It resides in people individually and as they organize together as peoples. You can think of it this way. Evil is individual and evil is systemic. Anything that people create, evil comes in with it and it touches everything. That's That's why Jesus comes not only as savior, hello, he comes as king. That's why we see in Revelation 21 and 22, it's not just that the new heavens and the new earth come with just like this new realm where people, where, where people live, but as a Jesus comes back and he takes the old and he makes it new, he cleanses the earth from the presence of sin. The tragedy in the Garden of Eden was not just that Adam and Eve brought death into the world, it's that they were expelled from the garden and the entire created universe fell under the dominion of darkness. Sin is so bad, it's not just in the human heart, it's baked into everything in the created order and that's why we need Jesus to come back and make it all right. Listen, everything that humans touch reflects the spirit of Babylon. Listen to what one commentator says, every great center of power that has prostituted its wealth and influences restores to life the spirit of ancient Babylon. The repulsive immorality and idolatry and luxury and misuse of power that characterize Rome has been reproduced many times throughout history and we must all recognize the same depravity in our way of life today. Babylon didn't go away with Babylon's collapse or Rome's collapse. You gotta know that spirit still exists. Third, ready for some hope? (laughs) Here it is. Oh, friends, let us take refuge, take refuge in the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you feel, like truly feel the implications of this, of this passage, it should make you realize, wow, there is no hope in me and there's no hope in anything that I can create. That's all true. In fact, the only hope for us human beings is a divine rescue operation where both human beings and the entire society are freed from the pervasive effects of the seduction of sin. 
Listen to me, evil is so bad and so baked into everything that our only hope is not what we can do, but we need someone else to come and deliver us from us and to come and reorder the entire creation and make it all new. And in God's sovereign purposes, guaranteed by his will, that event was inaugurated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's gonna be completed when that king returns for his kingdom. So the hope for our future right now is the one who was, the one who is, and what else? The one to come. That's why the second coming of Jesus is so incredibly important. The seductive and pervasive power of evil one day is going to fall. But it's gonna fall because Jesus comes back. Listen to Revelation 17, 14 again. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And then here's you and me, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So what is your hope that you're gonna make it? Your hope is I've got a relationship with the King of Kings, he's coming back, and my identity is called, chosen, faithful. So tomorrow morning you wake up, you got a big day in front of you, temptations that you know are gonna come your way, navigating your way through a seductive and pervasively evil culture. How do you make it? How do you do it? You do it this way. I know my king and I know who I am. His name is Jesus. Who am I? Called, chosen, faithful. And the seductive and pervasive power of evil one day is going to be defeated by this king of kings and lord of lords. And until that day, his church says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Lord Jesus, come even now. By your Holy Spirit, remind us who we are so we can fight well this next week. Let your spirit fill us with wisdom and understanding and discernment. Help us to feel what we ought to feel so we can live how we ought to live. Oh, grant us grace right now Shock us into greater awareness of our need of you. We pray this, our King, in your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.